Please remain standing and turn with me to Psalm 8, which will be our Old Testament reading. Set up the background for the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 this week and the rest of the chapter next week. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Amen. You may be seated. Many people like to say that we Christians are living in between the already and the not yet. 
the already and the not yet. But what, what do they mean by that? Well, um, several things, actually. So, for example, if you're trusting in Christ, you are already saved. You can't become more saved than you already are. Right? Um, God will never love you more than he does now. You're already a child of God. You can't become more a child of God than you are today. But there are some things that are still not yet for you, right? Um, You're not yet in heaven. That's one of the most obvious ones. You're not yet finished with your, your struggle against sin. Sometimes that feels even more obvious to us. Uh, You're not yet seeing Jesus face to face. You and I are living in between the already and the not yet of God's uh, plan for us personally. Now, let's think about the Lord Jesus himself in a similar way. So Jesus has already come. Jesus has already lived and died, risen from the dead. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. He is already the risen and reigning Savior and King. All these things have already happened. But, of course, there are also still some things that are not yet about Jesus and his, and his work. Right? Jesus has not yet returned in glory. Every knee has not yet bowed. Every tongue has not yet confessed that he is Lord. Jesus has not yet judged the world. Those things are still future. And so it's not just our own personal experience of salvation. It's God's great history of salvation. God's work in the world that we're talking about when we say that we're living in between the already and the not yet. We're taking a couple of weeks break from the book of Romans uh, to look here at Hebrews chapter 2 with a particular focus on what it teaches us about the birth of Jesus, about the incarnation, about the question, why the Son of God became man. Uh, And here in the first nine verses of Hebrews 2, that already not yet concept is going to be very important here. So let's look at the first part of the chapter then uh, in three parts. Number one will be a great salvation, verses 1 through 4. Number 2 will be glory after humiliation, verses 5 through 8a. And then number 3, an already not yet situation, verses 8b through 9. So a great salvation, glory after humiliation, and an already not yet situation. All right, so the great salvation. A major theme of the whole book of Hebrews is uh, to show us how the work of Jesus that we enjoy now as New Testament Christians is so much better than anything that came before it in the history of God's saving work in the world. So the Old Testament is full of great acts of God's salvation, uh, great revelations from God, great uh, acts of faithfulness, of the faithfulness of God towards his people. Um, But we can also describe it as being full of pictures and shadows and previews. See, now that Jesus has come, the real thing has arrived that the Old Testament was pointing towards. It's like everything leading up to Jesus was in black and white, two-dimensional, and uh, animated. But now, everything is in full color, 3D, live action, because Christ 
has come. He has actually lived and died and risen from the dead and entered into the heavenly sanctuary, the very presence of God. The Jerusalem temple, under the Old Testament, was only ever a model of that deep reality of heaven where Jesus actually is now, where he's actually gone, and where he is planning and working to bring us to be with him. Chapter 1, you remember, begins by saying that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers uh, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a different way, a climactic way. He has spoken to us in his Son. And so he's done something so much better for us than even all of the many wonderful and spectacular things that he did for Israel back then. Jesus is even better. Uh, Much of the rest of chapter 1 focuses on how much better Jesus is than the angels. In other words, Jesus is not merely an extra special heavenly messenger. He's not just an ultra-powerful angel of God. He's in a different category altogether. He is God. He is on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. So that's the point of chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, then, there is a major point of application for the church. Therefore, it begins. This is the conclusion after describing how much better Jesus is than the angels superior to any of the ways that God has revealed himself to his people in the past. Therefore, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Every year in December, first week of December, I start struggling to think, okay, what, what else is there to say about the birth of Jesus? What is there that's fresh that people haven't heard a million times before? Um, of course, there's something to that. Preaching is partly about taking old truths and making them, presenting them in a fresh way. So we, we hear them and take them to heart today. The living present, they're not just artifacts of things that we once learned in the past. On the other hand, I'm wrong to think that way, aren't I? The truth itself is not supposed to be new. It's not supposed to be novel. In fact, that's where preachers often get into trouble, trying to say something that no one's ever said before. It's a risky business because, for one thing, most likely somebody has said it before and the church probably called it a heresy. Um, But that's a different story. Uh, What we're being called to here, here we're being called to pay much closer attention to what we have already heard, lest we drift away from it. He's calling us back to the basics of the gospel, that old, old story, that basic, pure, good news of the incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension and return, future return of Christ. That is what God's people need. That is what all of us need. Fresh, yes, but novel, no. It is, it's like a, a, an old family recipe. We've eaten it a hundred times before, but it's fresh out of the oven today. Right? 
to feed us for today. And so it's new today, even though it's old, even though it's the same. And we need it again today and tomorrow and the next day after that. Why? Because we are so quick to forget. We are so quick to lose our focus, to lose our sense of urgency, to hold on to that simple good news of Christ that our lives are supposed to orbit around. And we go running off and all scattered in all kinds of other directions. So this, this, this passage is teaching us that we are, in a sense, accountable for the Incarnation. We are accountable for the Incarnation. In other words, living as we do after the birth of Christ. Christ has now come. We live in a different kind of universe, a universe that is different and better than it ever was before Christ came. We live in a universe that God has entered into in the flesh. And that places upon us a special obligation, a responsibility. Christ has come. So how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as that? And yes, there's no doubt God was at work in the world before Christ came. But he was at work deliberately in partial and temporary ways. He worked through angels and other intermediaries. Uh, That's the point of verse 2. Back then, God spoke through angels. One of those many times in many ways from chapter 1, verse 1. But now he has spoken to us by his Son. Now he has given us a greater messenger, a greater salvation. And that salvation then places a call on our lives to respond to it. And I want you to understand, every one of us here today, I want us to not leave here missing this point, that you cannot be neutral about the coming of Jesus. You can bow the knee and believe in him and serve him and love him, or you can be his enemy. Those are the only two options for any human being. What you can't be is, I don't know, ambivalent, careless, that kind of carelessness, that decision just to kind of drift along, a decision just not to do anything about the message of Jesus. Well, that is a decision. It's like so many other areas of life where indecision is a decision. It's a decision to reject Jesus. It's a decision to reject the good news about him and to neglect this great salvation that he has accomplished. Do not let that be you. Hebrews is saying, don't do it. Don't try to take that path in neutrality because there isn't one. We are all accountable for the incarnation. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king then. Let every heart prepare him room. That's an urgent call for every individual. Now, starting in verse 5 then, uh, we're reminded that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, he is the king. God has subjected the world to his authority, not to angels, but to Christ, who is greater than any uh, greater than any angel, of course. And to elaborate on this point, the author goes straight to Psalm eight, Psalm eight, which we've already sung, we've already read it. So hopefully, it's fresh in your minds here. Um, 
To understand how Hebrews is using Psalm 8, it helps um, to think of that psalm as having kind of a broad application and kind of a narrower application. Let's think about this. So in a broad sense, Psalm 8 is clearly talking about the creation of man. Think about Adam in particular, and through Adam, mankind in general, with Adam as our first father. So God made Adam... Uh, lower than the angels, didn't he? At least in this sense, angels were to think of as heavenly beings. Think about it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens we think of as up there, the earth we think of as down here. And so um, there's a heavenly glory that the angels possessed that Adam did not possess as an earthly uh, creature. Adam did not have it living in the Garden of Eden, even living in the Garden of Eden before the fall, even before he sinned. Adam did not possess that heavenly glory of the angels. Now, that did not mean that Adam had no dignity, that he was not special, or that mankind was just another animal. No, because even though God made Adam lower than the angels, Psalm 8 says he did crown him, though, with glory and honor, right? How so? Well, for one thing, he was made in the image of God. Something was not true of any of the uh, animals. And not only that, but God also gave to Adam dominion, authority. He made him king over the whole creation as God's representative. In a broad sense, God put everything under Adam's feet. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Everything under his feet. Okay, so how did Adam do then? How did Adam do as king of the cosmos? Not great, right? He sinned, and so that authority that was supposed to reflect perfectly God's loving rule over his creation was distorted, it was broken. This is one way of describing why Jesus came. It was to repair what Adam had ruined, uh, the way that Adam had botched this job of having everything under his feet. Um, Jesus came to be that king of creation that Adam failed to be. This is one of many reasons why Jesus is often called the second Adam, second Adam. It's also um, the kind of point of intersection where we can start to see uh, the maybe narrower application of Psalm 8, the way that Psalm 8 teaches us not just about mankind in general, but about Jesus in particular. Jesus is not just any man. He is the man. He is the second Adam. He is the God-man. And as a true man with a complete human nature, body and soul, Everything that can be said about mankind, apart from sin, can be said about Jesus. And that means that everything Psalm 8 says about mankind is also true of Jesus. And Hebrews is trying to point out for us just how profound that is. Because it means that Christ, the Son of God, the the person he spent most of chapter 1 proving is so much better than the angels, who is indeed the creator of the angels, the creator of the angels, was made for a little while lower than the angels he had created.
imagine that. This God who made the angels being made as man lower than those created beings that he himself had set in their heavenly places. It's this amazing reversal, this this humility, this descent. God coming down infinitely far, bridging the gap between creator and creature that we never, ever could have bridged going the other way, starting from the other side. Shorter Catechism asks the question, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? In other words, tell me about Christ's humiliation. What was it all about? And the answer starts, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. Dot, dot, dot. It goes on from there, right? He was born in a low condition, in the manger, and so on. The circumstances of his birth goes on to the misery of, his, of so much of his life, and his death on the cross, and his, his burial, and so on. But we can just stop after that first phrase and stand in awe without going another step further that Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born in the first place. To be born at all, I don't think we can really adequately take in what an infinite act of love and humility and grace that was to draw near to us across that limitless divide between creator and creature. and To to take on our frail and fragile human nature. For Christ, God the Son, to grow from a clump of cells and and to pass through the, the trauma of childbirth and to live through that utter dependence and vulnerability of infancy. God doing that for us as man. If Scripture didn't reveal that to us, I think that would be unimaginable for us to contemplate God the Son descending that low the creator of the angels, being made for a little while lower than the angels. Of course, that's only part of the message of Psalm 8. Um, Psalm 8 is not teaching us to be embarrassed about our humanity. You know, woe is us, we're just human beings, we'll never be as great as the angels are. Wish we could be angels instead. No, it's not teaching us that it would be better. We should wish to be an angel instead of a human being. No, Psalm 8 is actually ultimately about the God-given dignity of human nature, which was wrecked, it's true, by Adam's sin. Uh, but what makes all the difference is to read that psalm again now that Christ has come and to remember what happened after Christ's birth. And so this, this second point we've called glory after humiliation, Right? And that's the point here. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now that baby laid in a manger is no longer in the manger. He has now, in fact, lived that perfect life of obedience. He has earned that perfect um, uh, righteousness. He's carried out to perfection his office as our prophet and priest and king. He's died 
once and for all, that sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. He's risen triumphantly from the grave. He's ascended into heaven. He's entered into the presence of the Father ahead of us and on our behalf. And God has crowned him with glory and honor far above the angels. And he's put everything, the angels included, under Christ's feet. He left nothing outside his control. And we can say that not only about Christ's divine nature, which he's possessed eternally, but about his glorified human nature. As the man Christ Jesus, Christ is reigning over all things, including the angels. He left nothing outside his control. I love when the hymn says, Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him. But in heaven, set at God's right hand on high. It's one of the risks or uh, things to be be aware, be wary of during the season of the year. It's not to get in our imaginations that Jesus right now is a baby in the manger. He's not. Beware of that. That is, he was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now he has been crowned with glory and honor. We are to worship him as the risen, ascended Christ. This is so important. Okay, here's where things get hard for us. Um, so when you got up this morning, did okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but did you wake up with your eyes were just popped open, they were bright and you had this thrill in your heart and you leapt out of bed with a spring in your step thinking Jesus is reigning in heaven. Life could not be better. Or did you wake up thinking something along the lines of ow. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Is it morning already? Uh, and, and more seriously, you know, the, the things last night that were spinning in my head and were keeping me awake late into the night, they haven't gone away. Those problems are still here this morning. And I don't, I don't see how they're possibly going to turn out for good. Uh, maybe yesterday you read the news, the world news, and it was like this heavy, cold, wet blanket of desperation was spread out across this weary, weary world. I want you to understand the people who initially heard and read the book of Hebrews, uh, they knew what that felt like. They were living in a culture that was hostile to them. They were a suffering church. They lived constantly with that vivid experiential sense that they were not at home in this world under the curse. This book is is casting for us this glorious and expansive and beautiful picture of reality of, of the reality of Jesus' reign over creation, yes, but this book of Hebrews is also very real, for, real about the dissonance that we feel between that truth, between that glorious heavenly reality, and what we actually experience when we get up in the morning or when we lie awake at night. It is very real about the fact, as the passage goes on here, that we do not yet see everything in subjection 
to Jesus. We don't. We live in a world that very often does not look under anybody's control. And every knee is not bowing. Every tongue is not, right now, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's why we say we're living in an already not yet situation. Christ has come as Savior, but he has not yet come as judge. Christ is reigning in heaven, but his reign has not yet been openly revealed in his final victory. And so the question is, what are God's people supposed to do in the meantime? Here we are living in between the already and the not yet of Jesus' mission in the world. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But, it's the next word, but, where it turns the corner. But what? But we see him. We see him. Now, frankly, I find the ESV translation of this verse a little bit confusing. So, sorry about that. Um, Something interesting about uh, comparing English with other languages. In many other languages, word order is not as important as it is is in English. Um, Word order is not as important in Greek as it is in English, or at least it's important in different ways. Word order works differently. And so what's happened here is the ESV translation has tried to keep the Greek word order um, in a way that actually confuses the meaning a little bit, I think. Um, I want you to listen to this translation from the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Um, It says this, But we do see Jesus, dash, made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, dash, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so if you take out what's in between the dashes, you get, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And this Jesus, is he's being described as the one who was made lower than the angels for a short time so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Um, If you're using the ESV, another way you can make good sense of it is, is to imagine, or maybe even write in a parenthesis before the phrase, namely Jesus, and then after the phrase, the suffering of death. And that might help to kind of see what the author is getting at. Okay, so this verse is basically making two points here. First, it tells us why Jesus was made lower than the angels. It was so that he could die for us. Why did God become man? We could give a very long, multifaceted answer to that question. There's a lot to say about it. There are also some wrong answers we could give. A lot of people, when they think about the birth of Christ, they just, they just think God became man to show us that he loved us. He became man just to draw near to us, just to be with us and kind of have this sympathy and compassion and fellow feeling with mankind. That is a thin and impoverished understanding of why God became man, why Christ came. It's certainly part of it. That's not the main point. What Hebrews teaches us here in chapter 2, verse 9, why did God become man? It is 
big part of it is so that he could die. So that he could die. God cannot die. He's immortal. But Christ, the God-man, could. He descended that love for us so that he could take our sin upon himself, so that he could suffer our penalty in our place, condemned on the cross as our substitute. He had to, do, he had to be man in order to do that. He had to be lower than the angels in order to do that. And among other things, that is why Jesus was born. But then this verse leads us back up the other direction. Right? Why was Jesus afterwards crowned with glory and honor? Well, it was precisely because of the suffering of death. It was because he fulfilled his mission. It was because he died for sinners. He did the work that the Father gave him to do. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. For that very reason, Jesus' obedience in going so low for us was rewarded when God the Father raised him so high, placing everything in subjection under his feet and giving him the forever glory of heaven. And yes, we do not yet see that glory openly displayed on the earth. It's true. There is history yet to be made. And by the way, there are sinners yet to be saved. That's something we sometimes forget when we feel that tension. Oh, I wish that Jesus would have already come. I wish that um, you know, he, would, he would enter his final glory right away. Well, if Jesus had done that, say, 100 years ago, or right away after his ascension into heaven, don't forget, you and I would have never lived to see it. Is that what you want? Be careful what you wish for. So much of what God has in store for Christ and for us is not yet. Brothers and sisters, think of how much is already, already here. In the gospel, in the good news, we see Jesus. We behold his glory. We are assured of his love. We are comforted by his promises and we are strengthened by his spirit. This is my father's world. We could add, it is Christ's world. And so, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Christ on his heavenly throne is the ruler yet. And the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Heaven coming down to earth. That is what the birth of Jesus was all about, but that was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. Already, but not yet. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the grace of and love and humility of the Lord Jesus in taking our nature and being born, coming so low, and being made for a little while lower than the angels. But, Lord, we are also so thankful and overjoyed that he did not stay in that state of humiliation. Now he is exalted 
ruling and reigning and interceding for us in the heavenly places. And we look forward eagerly to his return. We ask that all the things that are not yet now would become already in your good time. That the Lord Jesus would come quickly and bring us home. And in the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would give us patience, you would give us faith to trust these promises, uh, to wait with patience uh, for the glory that you have prepared for us and for him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.